On the show this week, a political bombshell rocks Ottawa serious allegations against the Prime Minister's office. That the PMO pressured former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould to end a criminal prosecution against SNC-Lavalin, a Quebec engineering and construction company. The Prime Minister says those allegations are categorically false, but the opposition isn't buying it. So, where do we go from here? We'll find out on the show. Then, as the crisis intensifies in Venezuela, President Nicolas Maduro is refusing to give up power, despite the U.S. and Canada and others recognizing interim president Juan Guaido. We'll talk to Guaido's interim ambassador to Canada to get his take on what we can expect next. And finally, Bill C-69 is one of the government's most contentious bills. That would overhaul the way our natural resource projects are assessed, which both industry and environmental groups are saying is critical to Canada's environmental and economic future. The bill is now in the Senate, but both sides are digging in their heels. We'll find out why. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Late last week, a political bombshell rocked Ottawa. Serious allegations against the Prime Minister's office. That the PMO pressured former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to end a criminal prosecution against SNC-Lavalin, a Quebec engineering and construction company that has faced numerous charges of corruption. The Prime Minister says these allegations are false, but the opposition is calling for an emergency Justice Committee meeting this week. So where do we go from here? Joining me now are three MPs here in studio for the NDP, Nathan Cullen for the Liberals, Marco Mendicino, and in Toronto, Lisa Wright representing the Conservatives. Marco, you're here representing the government, so I'll start with you. You've been denying the story is true. I'm going to ask one more time, did the PMO at any point try to pressure, influence, twist the former Attorney General's arm to get involved in the SNC-Lavalin case? No, and the Prime Minister made that statement yesterday with integrity, and that is because he respects the Office of well, the Attorney wait, wait, General. Wait, yesterday all he said is that they didn't direct her, which was never the allegation, and that fed the story. And that distinction was collapsed in question period, and I believe that um, whether you want to use the word direct or influence, uh, he or neither his staff did either. And that is because he respects the office of the Attorney General and the independence that it imports. And that is a value that runs through all the work when it comes to our work in the justice system, work that was advanced by Minister Wilson-Raybould, and work that is now being advanced by David Lametti. And it is, a, it is a value that will continue to influence all of our work in a very positive way. Nathan, do you believe that? No. I don't, because it, when the Prime Minister was asked again and again and again, he would only use the word you first used, which was direct. Other Liberals have been saying other things, but the Prime Minister of Canada has, has been guided by lawyers, I assume, to only say a certain thing. We have a, a bombshell of a report from Bob Fife, a very respected journalist, as you know, has, has been able to do this before, uncover things that have meant a great deal in the end. And Jody Wilson-Raybould has gone silent, and I think the silent speaks volumes. Look at what this is. SNC-11, a massive multinational company that has illegally given more than $100,000 in contributions to the Liberal Party, wanted a change in Canadian corporate law so that they wouldn't come up on corruption and bribery charges that would then deny them from getting any future government contracts for 10 years. The Liberals conceded to make that change in the law. Then we see the case going ahead. Jody Wilson-Raybould, you remember her letter that she put out to Canadians saying that yeah, we, she we needed to, be, to, to speak, to, to speak truth to power and be able to be free of even the perception of influence. And at the time, I don't know about you, but I wondered what was she referring to? It's an, I've never seen a minister get shuffled and release a letter like that, especially saying those things. 
Now we find out through Fife's report that there was be pressure being put on her, saying, why don't you give these guys, let them cop a plea, let SNC-Lavalin get out, and then be able to continue to bid on all these lucrative government contracts. The whole thing stinks. That's why we're calling for an inquiry. And if the Liberals have nothing to hide, then clearly they'll support at least our motion at the Justice Committee, which is next week, and our, the letter I wrote to the Ethics Commissioner right now asking for him to do an okay, investigation I want to get also. back to two of those things in a moment, but Lisa, first I want to give you a chance to respond. Sure. I mean, uh, we're talking about the Office of the Attorney General of Canada. That person is in charge of all prosecutions of criminal law in this country. And as such, even though they sit in cabinet, they are actually have to be independent of what happens politically. And there's lots of rules and regulations about what you can and cannot say to the Attorney General on matters. What we want to do is get to the bottom of it. As Nathan said, there's going to be a motion at the Justice Committee next week asking for parliamentary review and having nine witnesses come in to at least tell us whether or not they had conversations with the Attorney General so we can determine whether or not there has been political interference from the Prime Minister's office in a criminal case. And if it, there is, it's very severe, Mercedes. Marco, will you allow that committee to go forward? Are the Liberals going to say yes? And if so, are you going to let it happen in full view of the public? Well, first of all, it's not up to me, and I'm not a member of that committee. I'm a well, parliamentary you, secretary. You are a member of the Liberal Party, and you're the government's representative. And what the government has said time and time again is that when it comes to committee business, those committees exercise their functions and their responsibilities independently. Except for you have and, a majority on that committee. Well, that's not uh, by any other function than the, the result of the uh, of the last election. And so then you should be able the, to tell us if you're going to allow it to go forward. Well, part of uh, what what it means to be independent is to not impinge on the debate that occurs at those committees. Those uh, committee members, not only the Liberal members, but members of the Conservatives and the NDP, and Who any other... don't outnumber and, you, so it's still up to your party. And any mm -hmm. other uh, members of that committee have a responsibility to undertake which issues they're going to study, which witnesses they're going to call, which evidence so they're going to yes. entertain. It's not for me to say, mm -hmm. and saying so would actually potentially impinge on the independence right. of the committee. So that is what it means to be okay, independent. So that, Let me that make doesn't, a, can, I sound... a, can I just make a comment as well just about the other parties? Because yes, SNC-Lavalin and this prosecution have been well known. You'd have to be living under a rock not to know about the prosecution. But SNC-Lavalin also met with Jagmeet Singh. They mm -hmm. also met with Andrew Scheer. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether or not either uh, of my two oh. colleagues would be willing to talk about those meetings. Absolutely. Oh, yeah? Sure. We'll talk about problem. our meetings if you'll talk Let's about go. yours. How about yeah. that? Let's 100%. get that commitment right now. Jagmeet Singh, Lisa, you're good, right? Yeah. Andrew Scheer will come forward and absolutely talk about everything that happened in that meeting. Well, if breaking, the Liberals will do the same thing. now, Nathan, for Andrew Scheer. That's a new thing. I just asked Lisa and she confirmed Make it. So deal. here's the thing. Here, there's the deal. And you know what? You the got, Liberals would, won't would agree to that deal. Would you be willing to talk about it? As I said, look at the, the the opposition will do what they want to do. If they want to bring the issue forward okay. to the committee, it'll be up okay, to the and, committee and to I decide. I think you raise a fair point that the Conservatives certainly have a history with SNC-Lavalin as well. Uh, the NDP lost, so they haven't been in power or been government, so it's not the same kind of responsibility. But Nathan, you're saying these are such terrible allegations. Mm -hmm. Why only go to the Ethics Commissioner? Because oh. we both know the Ethics Commissioner does not have teeth. No. Okay, I would, oh. I would want to challenge oh. you on that a little bit, Mercedes. Well, the ethics can, cannot cannot put anyone in jail, cannot no, find right. people for a significant so amount, what, unlike, say, the RCMP. What, what, we're, what we're talking about here is the potential obstruction of justice. It brings a 10-year jail sentence, as, as Marco Mendicino would know, that, that yeah. the, the crime is serious because it's influencing an office holder about a court case that's going on. All the dots are lining up and paint a picture, and everyone's looking at it and saying, my goodness, did the Prime Minister's office really try to put pressure on the Attorney General of Canada, supposed to be independent, and when she wouldn't concede to that pressure, she was fired. 
that letter that we talked about before, mm -hmm. how clearly unhappy Jody Rislin-Raybould was to be removed from justice, the first Indigenous woman justice minister in Canada's history. And Mark will talk about veterans, which is fine, but we all know that she was removed from that position, and we didn't know why, because the government's never told us was why. She Nathan, well, of course not, and I think it's really not. disrespectful. It's really disrespectful for Nathan to speak on Jody Wilson-Raybould's behalf. To well, characterize to be fair, we, we have asked Jody Wilson-Raybould to talk on this, he, and she has chosen not to. Nathan just made explicit statements with regards to how she felt about her new assignment. Did you watch the they did not, David Lametti did. did. They you, look at. I'm sorry, but it is not uh, either for Nathan nor for anyone or, else to speak Lametti, for Jody okay. Wilson-Raybould. Her statement spoke about the pride that she took in her role well, as let, justice okay, minister. Okay, let's, let's look at the and statement. And she also spoke keep, about the pride mm -hmm. that she wanted to continue to continue it. to do on behalf Unique of veterans, and that's not being fired, and that's certainly not being demoted. Unique responsibilities to uphold the rule of law, administration of justice demands yeah. a measure of principled independence. And she goes on to say it is a pillar of our democracy that our system of justice be free from even the perception of political interference and uphold the highest levels of public confidence and says she was always willing to speak truth to power. Lisa, I have never yeah. seen a cabinet minister release a letter like this before when they're shuffled. Do you think that that is certainly what she was talking about or is there a possibility there's another shoe that's going to drop here and there's something else? Well, to me, what she was signaling is that in her role as Attorney General, not as the Minister of Justice, that she received pressure to make certain decisions. I suspect that there may be some other ones. That's part of the reason why we want to get people in to talk about the interactions between the Office of the Attorney General and the Prime Minister's Office. And to Nathan's point on the Ethics Commissioner, the Ethics Commissioner has a very strong role to play here because you must, you must testify, you must talk to the Ethics Commissioner if they want to speak with you. And if they find any wrongdoing, they must turn it over to the RCMP and let it go well, their Lisa, way. Would, the Ethics would Commissioner your party has a contact role. the RCMP? Well, we're the in RCMP process saying right that they're now. aware of this. Sure, but we're in a process right now where we're going to deal with it in the most expedient fashion, which is requesting nine witnesses to come in and tell us what happened at the parliamentary committee, where they have to testify, and it is under oath, and they do have to appear before us and answer our questions. We think and that's if, the right way to do it immediately. And if there's nothing to hide, if everything right. that happened within the, between the prime minister's office and the former attorney gen general, if, there's, if there, everything was copacetic and they have proof to show that, then the Liberals should support our motion. They should have no yes. problem with this. But if I watch question period and I just watch the non-answers that just verbatim, it doesn't matter what question we ask. Well, I, I want to ask a very direct question, question to you, Marco. Mm -hmm. And the you know, former Attorney General has put out a statement saying she can't comment on this because of solicitor-client privilege. Your government has the power to waive that privilege to allow That's her right. to either deny the story or confirm it. Will you do that? First of all, uh, solicitor client privilege is a constitutional principle and it has to be taken very seriously because when uh, the Attorney General of Canada is offering advice to the Government of Canada, she or he is doing so in order to ensure that legislation and policies are consistent with the Charter and that's also consistent with uh, conventions which have existed not only since the birth of our so Federation, but since before. So does that mean that you, you will or won't waive it? Ultimately, those decisions will be taken by the Government of Canada. But right now, what which I will say, you. well, which is not me, to be fair. Uh, which is uh, the Prime Minister in, in consultation with Cabinet. But what I will say is that it is entirely counterproductive to ensuring that we have a justice system that provides access to justice when we have allegations which are not substantiated, which are not based in oh. fact, but which are rather based on reports. So you could allow her to simply come out and say that? Anonymous sources. So, well, I'm sorry, but we have said so that. The Prime Minister has said that these allegations are that. false. She's been silent and that's fed the story. Her 
I, what I will say is that she has made a statement both about the pride that she's taken in her past role as Attorney General. Okay. Right. And we have her to wrap it up there. As veterans, I'm sorry. Minister, that's all the time we have for today. I'm sure we're going speak, to be and back. And choosing not to. Okay. That's a fact. That's the end for today, but not the end of the story. <laughs> As the crisis in Venezuela intensifies, President Nicolas Maduro has been refusing to allow desperately needed aid into that country. Canada has recognized opposition leader Juan Guaido as the legitimate president. Last week, members of the Lima Group met here in Ottawa and called for free and fair elections to be held soon. But the situation could get much worse before it gets better. Orlando Vieira Blanco, the newly appointed Venezuelan ambassador to Canada, joins me now from Montreal. Sir, your government has been recognized internationally, but the reality is that President Maduro is still running things on the ground in Venezuela. What are the next steps to try to dislodge him from power? The next steps is to understand from Mr. Maduro that the country is already facing the worst crisis, political crisis, economic crisis and social crisis in the life. Uh, of Venezuelan people. The next step is to continue with the pressure of the international community in order to convince them that it's time to go, that it's time to take down the power and try to cooperate with the political transition that is already running in Venezuela. What happens if that doesn't convince him and he maintains control of the military and the police? At some point, mm -hmm. does it reach a threshold where you think there's a potential for violence? We are, we are in, in, the, in the complex process right now in Venezuela, and one point is, for sure, the military force in Venezuela, but which is new right now, is that the military forces, you can see they are already uh, with the people. They, are, they belong to the people and they are part of the people. You can see in the last process, protesters in Venezuela in February 2nd, uh, I love uh, about 2 million, 2.5 million people protested, and it was not any detention and any kind of repression of, against the people. That is a sign that the national forces in Venezuela is making decision uh, nowadays. Do you believe that the military ultimately will turn against Maduro? I believe so. I believe that uh, enough is enough. I believe that is a huge uh, lack of humanity in Venezuela. We have uh, 1,135 uh, political prisoners right now. We have a huge starving. We have a, a huge uh, bad situation uh, in under medical and supply services and terms. So I do believe that national forces in Venezuela, they are part of the consequences of the crisis in Venezuela, so I'm sure that now they're moving uh, to the right side of the history. President Trump has indicated that all options are on the table, including the possibility of American-backed military action. Canada has taken the opposite position, saying that they don't back a foreign violent intervention. What do you think is the most helpful for the Venezuelan people in terms of threats or promises that might help to dislodge Maduro? I think that we have to make a responsible decision here. It's not about uh, military intervention in Venezuela. That is not the issue. The issue is uh, humanitarian surveillance in Venezuela, uh, humanitarian intervention in Venezuela. That's the point right now, and that's the way how we can we, we have to see the situation in our country. The coalition of the international community is looking to help is looking to improve the situation in our community, and that's, for me, is the point. It's not 
it's not about a military intervention, in my own opinion. There's significant Russian and Chinese influence in Venezuela around the Maduro government. How much of a role is that playing in the difficulty of your government being able to actually seize power and take command and control of the day-to-day -day operations of government? It's a transition that we are living right now. It's a, a very immense progress that in the ne in the just last 10 days, uh, 12 days, Mr. Juan Guaido has uh, making progress. Uh, his uh, executive decision just appointed a diplomatic representative around the world. It is an acceptation, already a recognition, of more than 50 countries around the world. So it's a process. It's a process in order to look exit, in order to lose uh, a happy ending peacefully and institutionally. Do you think there's a peaceful ending where Maduro survives if he simply refuses to give up power? Maduro must to give up. Uh, I don't know what, what, what's going to be the final decision, but maybe we can anticipate that how all the fact is running out. Uh, it's so easy to survive the power with a huge international community just not recognizing Maduro, recognizing Juan Guaido, just putting in evidence. There is a so, so many criminal issues in Venezuela. It's an international court right now trying to make a decision about investigation against the Maduro government. It's 85 percent, 90 percent of the population against Maduro. Is the national forces making a decision and thinking about it? Uh, I'm, I'm not seeing any government in the history to survive this kind of situation, even as a dictatorship. The Lima Group recognized your government in part because there was a promise to have free and fair elections. Do you have a sense of when those elections could be called? We have to realize, and we have to, to be clear, that in Venezuela is a huge dismantling of the structure of the state. We have to uh, reconstruct, to do, we have to rebuild the state, we have to put uh, uh, impartial uh, uh, magisters in the power of the, le the, the election branch in order to guarantee, in order to, to guarantee uh, uh, So there's uh, no timeline election. yet. That's right. Mr. Ambassador, how significant is the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela right now? Is uh, if the worst, a more sensible humanitarian situation that Venezuela ever uh, have in the whole history. We're talking about 80% uh, of the hospital in Venezuela, they don't have medical instrument in order to attend people. We have a huge lack of medicine. We have a huge malpractice uh, of malpractice and malnutrition uh, in terms of uh, foods uh, in Venezuela. We have a very serious and grave situation uh, with children who die when they they just burn. We have uh, an inflation with 10 million percentage. It's something unprecedented in the whole hemisphere, in the whole history of Latin America. That is the dimension of the crisis in Venezuela. What more would you like Canada to do? Canada is moving forward to many aspects of the humanitarian help. We try to canalize what the good method, the good ways in order to uh, achieve the objective and the goal. We are working together in order to suspend the deportation from Venezuelan people from Canada. We are just, we are just working together also in order to 
push with the international community to move forward in order to get pressure and sanction to finally achieve the goal to return and restore democracy, freedom and rule of law in Venezuela. Would you like to see Canada take more Venezuelan refugees? I see already Canada seeing a lot of measure and a lot of alliance and making the, the best effort in order to, to consolidate the, the final objective of restoration of democracy in Venezuela. Canada is a leader of championship. Canada is, is already helping a lot, hiding the voices in order to get the freedom and release of the uh, political prisoner. So we are very tight with Canada in, in, in this complex process. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much. Thank you, Mercedes. The purpose of Bill C-692 is to fix a broken system that was implemented by the previous government in 2012. That took away the ability of the indigenous peoples to participate uh, in a meaningful way. It took the ability of Canadians to participate in the regulatory process. It took the ability away for us to protect our environment, the waterways, fish, and fish habitat. We are fixing a system that will allow us to move forward on large energy infrastructure projects in a way that makes sense for Canadians. That was Natural Resources Minister Amarjeet Sohi taking heat in question period over one of the government's most contentious bills, Bill C-69. The bill overhauls the way natural resource projects are assessed. Both industry and environmental groups say it is critical to Canada's economic and environmental future. But the bill is stuck in the Senate, where there is a fight over how it should proceed. Joining me now, Senator Doug Block from Alberta. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mercedes. It's great to be here with you. So the government says that this bill is going to speed things up and provide better environmental regulation. You disagree. What do you think is so wrong with Bill C-69? There are a number of things wrong. The sensible thing for the government to do is to trash it and start again. But that's not going to happen. So what is fundamentally wrong is that projects in Canada, not just in the energy industry, but across the natural resource sector, must spend hundreds of millions of dollars to advance themselves. They want certainty up front. They want the government to say, yes, this is a project that we can get behind if all the boxes are checked. The way it is now, Mercedes, is that you have to do all of the work that's required, get all the boxes checked, then the government will tell you if they like the project. Industry is simply saying we cannot live with that uncertainty. So that is the big problem that I have. Second problem I have is when bodies are to consider how projects are to be approved, there is no consideration taken of economic factors. They must consider consultation factors, they must consider environmental factors, but nowhere is there issues such as competitiveness, such as prosperity, such as vibrant communities. Silent. There is nothing. So consequently, business, and this is, we're talking 20% of the Canadian economy here, has no certainty that their economic concerns must be taken consideration of. And then there's matters like standing, who can show up? Currently, anybody can show up. You don't need to have any necessary so connectivity. So it expands the, the number of people who could speak at those hearings. It is an open bar. What anybody happens can show up. to industry if this bill passes as it is? Well, you've seen the comments of the leaders of industry. The bottom line is they're saying, under this regime, we're just not going to bother applying for projects in Canada. We will take our money and do our projects outside of Canada. And Mercedes, we're seeing that now. Do you think it'll kill the oil sands? 
it will restrict the oil sands absolutely. There will be no new development in the oil sands. Many would argue that that's the very intent of the legislation, coupled with the tanker ban on the West Coast. Many would argue that's the whole purpose here. But in terms of the contribution that the oil sands make to Canada, this is an asset that we need to enhance and protect and take advantage of. But absolutely, there will be no new projects in the oil sands with this. There will be no new pipelines. I worry about forestry. I worry about mining. I worry about the offshore oil industry. I worry about the nuclear industry. We are talking the potential for the Canadian economy, the resource economy, just to move out of the country because we're closed for business. Do you think it is the government's intention to try to shut down the oil sands? I think there are parts of the government that believe that that will be a desirable outcome. I believe that, um, but there are, other, there are other Prime parts. Minister? I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about that. Certainly there are segments of the government that believe that uh, the oil sands are contributing too much to global warming. And these are, you know, these are real issues that we take these issues seriously. Now, you want to go across the country and consult with Canadians on this. The government is saying that this is really an expensive political stunt. At the end of the day, they have a majority to pass this in the Senate. Do you really think that those consultations will change anything at the end of the day? I'm hoping that they will. I think it's very important that the government understand clearly what Canadians are feeling about this legislation and not just big business, how it's affecting families, how it's affecting communities, how it's it's affecting First Nations communities. I think it's very important that my colleagues in the Senate hear firsthand from the pain and the dislocation that has been caused and will be accentuated with this bill. We have to wrap it up there, but thank you so much for your time, thank Senator you very Block. Much, Mercedes. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.